0: It'll take you down. There he goes. <laughs> we are uh, really glad you're here this morning. Again, if you are here for the very first time, we want to tell you how honored we are to have you. Um, it is a p- privilege uh, for you to give us your Sunday morning. I want to say thank you to Carson Rock for preaching last week. I took a a break and we went down and made a little tour of Texas and saw all of our family from Austin all the way through Lubbock and and came back. and It's an incredible privilege to have people in our body, in our community that are so talented and at least have such a deep passion for sharing God's Word. So uh, Carson, thank you for coming up and and preaching last week. So it's been quite a a break since we stopped or took a little hiatus from the book of Acts. We started way back in September and I told you we were going to make this movement through this book and we weren't going to Kind of know where we were going to end. I had tried to come up with a timeline. I'm already off it by like four weeks. So the reality is, we're just going to go with it. And so we're going to be moving verse by verse to the Book of Acts. And since it's been a while. I want to give you just a quick little glimpse, a little catch up to speed as to where we are. Uh, so those of you are here for the first time will kind of kind of know what's happening. But we kind of began this journey, this sort of epic movement through this book. And the book of Acts is unlike any book that I've preached before, mainly because of its size. It's 28 chapters, like, you know, 1,007 verses. It's massive, and it's got... These incredible movements that are calls, both calls for the Christ follower and calls for the church. What we see happening in the book of Acts is is God calling through the person of Jesus Christ, people to follow him, and these these movements of people are gathering together, and we see the church being born. But at its core, the birth of the church was not a a movement of people that was trying to create a new religion. On some level, it was almost an anti-religion. We see the church gathering up and pushing against the, the Roman religious system that was in play, namely things like emperor worship. We see this organic movement of people pushing against the Jewish religious system. We see this movement of people that have given their lives to Christ and been called together and are living in a way almost out of necessity, out of life. They shared possessions, and they shared heartbeats, and they shared theology, and they fought, and they lived together, and it was this sort of messy, organic movement of people. And the picture that comes out of the book of Acts is that New Testament church that is not perfect in all of its entirety, but is real and raw and authentic. And it's people huddled together in small corners basically saying, how do we do this? We're first-generation Christians. There were no grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles that could teach you the way. These are people that are following Christ together, led by the apostles. And it was a mess, um, but it was beautiful. And the picture that we see in Acts is that sort of movement of these early Christ followers. Now, the book of Acts was actually written by Luke. It was a companion volume to Luke's gospel. Luke Acts, scholars believe, was originally one giant book and uh, has kind of been divided into two volumes. But if you read Luke, right at the end of Luke, Picks up Acts chapter 1. Jesus is ascending into heaven, and Acts picks up right there. You can see immediately that it's a continuation. And it was written to this guy by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus is just a Greek name that means lover of God. We don't know much else about this person, but we know that Luke wrote this book to give him this entire picture from the birth all the way through the movement of the church to this guy named Theophilus. And so when we think about this letter. I, I mentioned that because context is going to be important as we go, right? That Luke was not necessarily penning this letter for you and I, but he was writing to this, this person, this very real, deep correspondence that God in his infinite, amazing way has orchestrated as his letter to the church. And the book of Acts is this sort of call to all of us, both as the church and as individuals, to what it means to really follow Christ. And it is both complicated and deeply moving all at the same time. And I love to preach this way. Those of you who have been coming for any period of time with us know that I love to preach kind of line by line through Scripture. I love to move through books of the Bible. I I, I failed preaching class. I don't, in seminary, I don't do like uh, topical kind of movements, three points in a poem kind of sermons well, right? I don't do that. Uh, I love to do this, and I love to do this because I deeply believe that any goal or the goal of any real preacher should be to introduce you into God's Word, to put God's Word in front of us so that we wrestle with it and kind of fight with it and come to grips with it and move in it and that we, we discover who God is in the middle of it. I want you to have a love affair with God's Word, and so I love preaching through it this way because it puts things before us that we don't know what to do with, and it makes us deal with them, right? And so... Kind of all that to say, if there were any passage in the book of Acts that I would skip, it would be this one, right? And so, as I was really wrestling with this, I thought, I would love to just hop to chapter 6, because chapter 6 is great. But this thing we're going to look at today is a hot mess, and I don't have any answers. And we're going to have to resist the urge to wrap everything up with a little bow have some great sort of movement at the end where we say, man, I feel better about myself and how to be a better me. Because today's passage has leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions. But you know what? Part of wrestling with God's word is dealing with the unanswered questions. It's dealing with the what about God's and what does this say about me and who I am and about what God has for me. And sometimes leaving those things unanswered is the best place to be. Because I found in those moments and those those places that we want to skip. And those places where we don't know what to do with the difficulties that God is moving and doing, right, are precisely the places that God is addressing uh, our hearts the most. And that's kind of what I find to be true. So this is all God's word, and we're going to take a kind of a run at it today. Um, But I'm kind of giving you that up front to let you know that there would be an easier way to do this. And what you'll discover as we go through the book of Acts is that you'll see why people hop around in text and jump over things that are complicated. Because to deal with some of these realities... It's challenging. It's challenging for our hearts, and it's challenging for our faith. So all have to say, we're going to be jumping to the book of Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So if you've got your Bible, open it up. If not, grab one around you. If you don't have one, keep the one that's right there in your chair. You're welcome to it. Um, they're they're free, so just take them. They're a paper, and so you can have it. We want you to have it. And uh, if you want a nicer one, then just tell me, and I'll get you a nicer one. So, uh, but you know, just take the one you got. So All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for... Uh, the opportunity to gather here Lord and I, I confess that I have wrestled with this text not because it's challenging but because of what it says about me um, Lord and I confess that there are places in scripture that I want to move beyond because it's easier and Lord the truth is is that this passage in text in text this morning is a stark kind of awakening a reality to the detestable nature of sin and the beauty of your whole God, I pray that as we open your word, what you would do is you would convict us and challenge us to live in the middle of these truths. Take a moment in your own heart, or just as you sit here this morning, just something simple. Ask God to teach your heart this morning. Just, God, teach me something this morning. Teach me about you. Just pray something simple, asking God to, to teach you this morning. someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Remember that this movement is not just about you, but it's about us together drawing to God's word. Pray that people around you might hear the Lord. God, we turn this entire morning over to you. God, I deeply believe an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. So teach our hearts, we don't take this lightly, God, this is your truth, it is your word. And we ask this in Jesus' risen name, amen. So Acts chapter 5, right? Part of me honestly thought if I just jumped to chapter, verse 11, no one would know, and so, but I, uh, I would, then I would, you'll see why I didn't do that when I read this text because honesty is going to become a pretty big deal when we read this, so. <laughs> All right, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest, and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think that doing such a thing, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had, seen, uh, all who had heard what had happened. The young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to be buried. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. See what I mean? So you've got this guy and his wife, and together they take a piece of property and they sell it. And they get together and they say, we're going to give some of the money to the church. We're going to give to the apostles, and we're going to keep some for ourselves. But let's not tell anybody that's what we're going to do. Let's just say we're giving them all the money. So the guy takes the money, Ananias, and he goes to Peter and he lays it at his feet and he says, I sold this piece of land and it's yours. And Peter, being sort of filled with the Holy Spirit, knows that something's up and makes a comment, basically saying, why are you deceiving God? This is basically not what happened, right? You're setting up a false pretense. You are basically lying, right? All the money was at your disposal, yet you chose to be dishonest with it. And Nice falls down dead. Young guys, I guess, because only young people can carry out dead people, come in, carry them out and bury him. Three hours later, his wife comes in, somehow has no idea that this has happened. Stands before Peter and says, uh, hey, how's it going? He says, hey, is this all the money you got? She's like, yeah. Dead. Paul's done. dead. They carry out and bury next to the husband, and everybody's afraid. And I make light of it a little bit because I really, at first glance, what do we do with this? I mean, this is an incredibly uncomfortable piece of text, right? But in order to understand it, we've got to read between the lines a little bit, and we've got to deal with some big realities. So if those of you have been coming for a while, you realize that we've been through four chapters of the book of Acts, and the picture that we've seen is this sort of movements of radical life change. Both Jews and Greeks that have had their lives so turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ that it has caused them to live in a way that says, I will give everything I have to follow Jesus. Not only will I give my freedom, my life, my security, my whatever, but my resources to follow the Lord. And they live in this sort of commonality of possessions. They came together and they shared those things, Acts 2, Acts 4. They both tell us that people brought their possessions from time to time. They sold them. They gave to those that had need. They lived with each other. They shared bread in each other's homes. They they lived together with one heart and one purpose. And we've explored those things in depth over the past nine weeks or ten weeks. And right at the end of chapter 4, we are introduced to this guy by the name of Barnabas. And Barnabas takes a piece of land that he has, and he sells it. And chapter 4 says that he brings the the money to the apostles, every cent of it, and he lays it at their feet, and he basically says, use this for the community. Whatever it takes to bring people to the kingdom of God, and he lays the money at their feet, every cent of it. Now, we learn a little bit more about Barnabas later on in the book of Acts, and he's this incredible guide. He's this heart of encouragement. His, His name literally means son of encouragement. He's always been trying to relieve people's pain. He's a companion of Paul. This sort of movement of giving those resources um, to the church kind of fits within the context of who he was. So we have that happening at the end of chapter 4, right at the end. And then Luke contrasts that movement of Barnabas with this sort of scheme and scenario of Ananias and Sapphira. And I think it's important that we actually name the problem because There's a lot of misconceptions about the problem, right? Most of us think the problem is is that Ananias' fire sold a piece of land, and unlike Barnabas, they didn't give all the money to the church, and so God killed them. They literally died because they didn't give all the money to the church. And while this misconception is incredibly untrue, it would be the greatest stewardship sermon ever. In fact, next time that I talk about money and resources, I'm going to read this, I'm going to quietly fold my Bible and I'm going to be like, hey, you guys decide what you're going to give. And I'm going to sit down. And we're going to pass the plates. And we're going to move to Galardia, right? Because ain't nobody want to die. But that's not really the problem. Right? Because what Peter says, if you look at our text, what he actually says is he says, Listen, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money? Right? Didn't it all belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money completely at your disposal? See, what what Peter's saying is he's saying, Listen, it's not about the fact that you have to give all the money. It was your land, and the money was at your disposal. It wasn't the fact that you didn't give it all but it was the pretense in which you did it. It was the movement in which you tried to demonstrate that you gave it all, but you didn't. You tried to make yourself appear better than you were. You lied to the church, you lied to people, and you lied to God, right? The problem was not that you didn't give it all. The problem was the lie in which you gave it in, right? Well, that's kind of equally as unsettling, if you ask me. I mean, even though we've named the problem correctly, Ananias and Sapphira still die because of their sin, right there in the presence of, of Peter. We assume that they're followers of Christ. They, they've so committed to the community, they would give part of their resources, their land sales to the poor. They come before them, their lie, their sin, their dishonesty, both to God and the church, cost them their very life, and they die. And that is equally as unsettling to me. Even though the problem is named correctly, it still leaves us with this place of saying, why? Why in this moment is God's wrath so quick? Why in this moment did that lie, right, cost them their very lives? Because here's the question, and I don't think the question is really, in my heart at least, is why did they have to die? But the question that will really mess you up is, what does this mean for me? Because none of us in here have ever lied to the church. We've never lied to each other, right? We've never told God something so that he would think a little better of us. We've never come before people in the community and wanted them to think that we were a little better than we were. We've never lived in hypocrisy. In fact, we've never done anything as horrible as Ananias and Sapphira. The reality is, is that we should all be shifting uncomfortably in our chairs because we live like this every day. So what does this mean for me? And it's a petrifying question, if we're really honest about it. It's a petrifying question. Because there's a reality in here of God's holiness and of the severity of sin that we have to deal with. I still don't have questions to the answer why. I still don't have questions to why this had to unfold the way it did, what God was doing. But in order to really grasp it, or at least wrestle with the right questions, there's a few things that we have to come to grips with, okay? correctly name the problem, We're still living in this sort of unsettled tension, but there's a few things that we've got to come to grips with in the middle of it. And the first one really is the idea of the holiness of God. So there's probably, if you look at our kind of evangelical modern church across the scope of kind of Western culture, all right, there's probably no doctrine, no theological doctrine that we have sort of done away with more than the holiness of God. We have taken the doctrine of God's holiness and we exchanged it for a doctrine of sort of comfort and complacency. And I've said this multiple times. We have taken God and we have turned him into our friend, our buddy, our, our sort of companion, our boyfriend, whatever it is. We've created this picture of God, right, that is our best friend and sort of comforter in times of struggle. And God fits into those categories for us and he's a shoulder to lean on when things are difficult. But if you read Scripture, if you deeply and really read Scripture, in fact you don't even have to read it that deep, just open your Bible, you will see that the picture of God in Scripture, Old Testament and New, is in stark contrast to what culture wants you to believe about God. that God is some kind of dull kind of docile sort of companion where angels float around like teddy bears and he looks and sounds like Morgan Freeman, right? God that looks at our sin and says, you know what, it's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. If you read scripture, this is not the picture we see of God. We see a picture of God that is mighty and majestic and holy and awe-inspiring. A picture where people come in contact with him and they drop to the ground. Moses' hair turns white. Paul, soon, or Saul, soon to be Paul, goes blind. People are struck literally unconscious and dead in God's presence because God's holiness is in stark contrast to everything that we are. God is holy, majestic, mighty. Isaiah says that his voice is thunderous. And when he rises up, entire nations scatter and people fall face down. God in Scripture is a God of power and of might. God is wild. God is dangerous. We don't like that picture of God. Because that does not fit into our understanding of what we believe God is, which is God is love, and our definition of that means that God is super, kind of a superhero, and his greatest skill is super love, and he comforts me, and he hugs me, and he holds me, and he treats my sin like a little bit of an annoying two-year-old, we're just sort of disappointed with our actions, but eventually you'll get over it, and as long as you come to church before you're married, or right when you're married, and you have kids, and everything's going to be okay, the truth is that's not what we see in Scripture, God detests sin. And his holiness is in stark contrast to it. Just read the Bible. People come in contact with him and they fall to the ground. They're rendered motionless. God is the God that hung the stars. He's majestic and wondrous. And God's holiness is very real. And what we begin to see in this story is that God's holiness, God's perfection, God's wonder, God's majesty is something we have to understand and take seriously. Because if we grasp the holiness of God, or to really grasp it, we have to understand the reality and severity of sin. Because God's nature is in direct contrast to the sinful nature of humanity. God, holy, infinite, amazing, wondrous, mighty, sin has broken humanity, and you and I are steeped in that desperate mess. And I've talked about sin a lot. We sort of talk through these themes quite often, but the reality of sin is that it is anything that breaks the moral law of God in action, attitude, or behavior. That's what the definition is. That our action, attitude, behavior, anything that breaks God's moral law, at every moment of our life, we live in the reality that we are breaking God's perfect movement of perfection. The Bible tells us very clearly that everyone has it, right? I could go through all the verses and show you, but I won't. Everyone's got it. Every single one of us. In fact, the Bible even tells us that if we say we don't, we're liars. We make God out to be a liar, right? Right? And his word has no place in our lives. Every single one of us is steeped in sin. The Bible also teaches that because of that, we are dead. Dead. Not sick, not dying, not sort of uncomfortable, but absolutely 100% dead in our sin. We are helpless and hopeless. Sin is severe and it is real. I was having a conversation with a guy not too long ago, and uh, we were talking about poverty and sort of the situation with people around the world. And I I just made comments. I said, it breaks my heart that this world is so sinful and broken. And he said, you know what, I I hear what you're saying, but I, I refuse to believe that the world we live in is sinful. I believe that people are inherently good. Well, most are good. Some are bad like Hitler, but the rest are good or inherently good. And that we're just sort of doing our best. And that God sees that and appreciates it. I looked at him and I said, every part of me wants to say, yes. I would love to see that in scripture, but I don't. I see the opposite. I see that I am a wretched, broken disaster that is one decision away from being as awful as Hitler ever was. Because it's in my nature to go against everything that God is. Being even more blunt, Colossian tells us, Colossians tells us that before we met Christ, we were enemies of God. Everything about us was God's enemy. We were not inherently good, making a few bad choices. We were detestable and broken and sinful and awful and apart from everything that God is. And we deserve his wrath. I know you're sitting there going, man, you are a Baptist. <laughs> Sin, death, brimstone. That's just a reality. The reality is this is the contrast in which God's holiness is paired against our sinful humanity. You and I, we were not just making a few mistakes. Our very nature is in contrast to all that God is. We are broken and sinful, and we have to understand that our sin is severe and that it is real and that we deserve exactly what Ananias and Sapphira lived into. And no one wants to say it out just because we don't want to say it, as I told this gentleman I was visiting with, does it make it less true? But here's the catch in all of this, right? The catch in all of this is the beauty of grace. So God's holiness, perfection, amazing majesty can't be with anything that is detestable. We are his enemies, our sinful condition, stark contrast to all that God is. But the idea of grace The idea of grace, the beauty of grace, is that while we were all that, God made a way for us. That in his infinite love, he sent his son Jesus to become death for us, to become our sin in this magnificent exchange. God takes our wrath that we deserve, puts it on his son so that we might have eternal life. And the picture of grace is God's unmerited favor. And undeserved love. And a couple of realities in grace. The first is that it's always and only an outpouring of God's love. It's because God's love is so big that grace exists. And the second thing is that you can and never will do anything to deserve it. No matter showing up here, trying to remedy the mistakes you made in your 20s. No matter going to church, doing Bible studies, doing the right things, making better choices, will ever get you closer to earning or deserving God's grace. We deserve death. We deserve God's wrath. But the beauty of grace is that God has made a way. Now here's why this is so amazing. And I just want you to, I'm going to read it to you because I want you to catch the picture. You don't have to turn there. And then we're going to actually go back to our story. But this is is just so you can see it in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and lived of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we, by our nature, were objects of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin. It's by grace that you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, but by gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good things that God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I want you to hear that because I am not making this up. We were enemies of God. Stark contrast to the reality of his holiness. Our sin, the severity of our sin is real, but God has made a but keep that in mind, and let's return to our story for just a moment. How does this relate to that picture? What does the idea of holiness and the severity and reality of sin and the beauty of grace have to do with our story of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, in really one word, everything. Ananias and Sapphira were engaged in living in sin. It may not seem as bad as some of the things that you've done, <clears throat> some of the things that I've done, but the reality is it was sin nonetheless and they were living in it, and they were steeped in it, and because of that, they deserved God's wrath the same way that you and I deserved God's wrath. I don't have answers as to why judgment came as it did. I don't have answers why as to why Ananias and Sapphira had to die in that moment. It's interesting to note that we don't see this thing happen anywhere else in the New Testament after this, for whatever that's worth, but I don't have answers. And I want to resist the urge to try and answer the question as to why. I don't know why. I want to fight that urge. Instead, what I want you to see in the middle of it, right, is the exact nature of God's incredible, awe-inspiring, beautiful holiness and stark contrast to the reality of the sinful nature of who you wonder of this morning, literally the wonder of this morning is that God has made a way. That we stand before God, just like these two people, having concocted a lie with our lives to try and demonstrate to other people and to God that we're a little better than we are, because we care so desperately about what people think, that even in that sinful debacle of a moment, God has made a way. And the glory of this morning is that God has given us grace through Christ and that we haven't fallen dead in our sin. So something interesting happens at the very end of this passage. We actually see it twice. Right at the end, we hear this. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and she died. Right? They carried her out and they buried her next to her husband. Verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So fear is an interesting concept in the Bible, right, because it's one of the ways that we are called to relate to God. If you read Scripture, Old and New Testament, you will see that we are called to live in fear with God. Live, it's how we relate to Him, fear and trembling, right? We fear God. But our understanding of fear in our sort of Western culture and what's happening in Scripture are two very different things. This isn't a fear that's like, I go to bed at night afraid of the monsters in my closet, so I pull the covers over. I don't like to ride roller coasters. This picture of fear is one that is really kind of rooted in reverence and worship, right? It was an understanding of all that God is, and all of His holy, majestic, wonder, dangerous, wild self in relation to all of my reality of my sinful, broken humanity. And when I see those two things in the same picture, I'm left with reverence. I'm left with, God, why? Why would you love me the way Why would you spare me the way that you do? God, why would you prepare and make a way for me? The people that feared God, when they feared God in Scripture, knew the holiness of God. They knew the sinful nature of their own humanity. And it took them to a place of reverence and worship. And not worship that we get together and we sing songs and maybe in the last and we lift our hands a little higher. Right? But worship that says, God, you are holy. And majestic, and you get my life. As broken as it is, you get all of it. A worship that leads us to repentance. God, I am broken, and I am sorry, and I am contrite, and I confess, and I love you because you have loved me. This is what it means to live in fear of God. And as a church, big C, we've lost the reverence and worship in which we approach God with. We have a God that fits into our convenient life cycles and a God that's the shoulder that I need to cry on. But the truth is, the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible is a God of majestic wonder whose presence we don't even deserve to be in. Yet, the wonder of today How do I answer the question, why Ananias and Sapphira died? I can't. Why they had to go that way, why God's wrath was so swift, I can't. But what I can stand here and say is that this morning, the wonder is that that's what I deserve. Yet God has spared me and made a way for me through his grace in Christ. And ultimately, that's what we celebrate when we think about communion. This is the way that God has made. God has taken his holy majestic self and exchanged it for sinful humanity through the person of Christ. Why? When we don't deserve it, I have no idea. Except to say God's extravagant love. Unmerited and undeserved. This is the way that God has made. And I don't say it lightly. In fact, Paul, when he's given instructions to the early church, he says, Don't engage in this lightly. Understand the nature by which it comes. That the God that made you, that formed you out of the dust, that breathed life into your very lungs, gave his life for you, for the very creation that would murder him. The God that made the universe. There are a lot of kind of questions in Scripture that we will wrestle with. And that's okay. But where we come to rest is this. But God. God made a way. That even though I deserve death and destruction, God has saved me through Christ. That through Jesus, God has given you the opportunity to receive life and be changed, redeemed, set free. God has made you.